Open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 6, where we'll enter the second chapter of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, and we'll deal with the first four verses. I hope that some of you read Nehemiah chapter 8 last night. You may have. Nehemiah chapter 8 describes in the most detail a great preaching service where Ezra and his assistants, about 14 of them are named, and the Levites read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused the people to understand the reading. That's preaching. Preaching is not storytelling. Preaching is not anecdotes or illustrations. Preaching is reading in the Word of God distinctly, giving the sense and causing God's people to understand the reading. And brethren, it told us before that happened, the people were very attentive. They came together as one man in the street that was before the water gate, and they stood there from morning until midday, men, women, and children with understanding. And when the service was over, they held a great celebration. They ate the fat, they drank the sweet, because they were all excited that they had understood the word of God that had been declared to them. And they said, can we do it again tomorrow? And can we do it again the next day? And they did it for seven whole days. And during those days, they discovered in the precious word of God that they had not been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, and it hadn't been kept for a thousand years since the days of Joshua. And they said, let's do it right now. And they did it. Those are the people of God. Those are great Christians. Those are the ones that will spend eternity in heaven. They love the word of God that's been sent down to us from heaven. That's all in Nehemiah chapter 8. We have covered so far the fifth chapter of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, the Lord Jesus Christ has given us eight lessons, but five of those were rebuking the preaching of the Pharisees and the scribes that altered the word of God and Jesus Christ undid their preaching and reestablished the fullness of the word of God. We come to chapter 6, and the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to rebuke their preaching. He's going to rebuke their practice. He's going to leave the words, you have heard that it hath been said. And he's going to describe how hypocrites worship God, and he's going to condemn them. We have three acts of worship that follow in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Three acts of worship, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting. Now, no one fasts anymore because there aren't any Christians left. Hardly anyone does almsgiving because there's not very many Christians left. Most pray, but they don't know how to pray. And so we've got lots to learn in Matthew 6, 1 through 18. I can tell you what's not being preached in the Saddleback Community Church this morning. He's not preaching on fasting. Fasting doesn't go well with a food court. In your foyer. We got some things to learn and we want to see how the Lord leads us through these. We want to deal with just the first four verses that deal with one thing called almsgiving. Let me read these four verses to you. And let's read them distinctly and let's listen to them attentively. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. To be seen of them. 
Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret. And thy father which seeth in secret, himself shall reward thee openly. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is infallible truth. This is absolute truth. We want to humble ourselves before these words, listen to them attentively, and consider them well and apply them to each of our lives. You can see in the second verse that there was a real problem among the Jews that Jesus would even describe their almsgiving by blasting a trumpet in the street or in the synagogues for to get everyone's attention so that they would watch when they gave their gifts. Isn't that disgusting? Jesus is mocking the most conservative denomination of his day by saying they blast a trumpet to get everyone's attention so that everyone will view them as they give their gifts to the church treasury. Incredible. Well, Jesus is going to take that apart. And he begins with the words, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Let's notice a couple things about that sentence. Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Alms are not a matter of liberty. Alms are a duty of a child of God. They're not a liberty. It's something you ought to be doing. The Savior isn't teaching you to do them. The teacher, the preacher... The Lord Jesus Christ assumes that you are doing them. He's going to teach you how to do them. This is not something new. This was taught in the law of Moses. And we'll look at it in just a moment. But first of all, notice that this is not something new that Jesus is teaching. He's not teaching something that's a matter of liberty. He's teaching a Christian duty, but he's showing you how to do it in a way that pleases God. This is not something new. God taught under the Old Testament that they ought to consider the poor. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19 in your Bibles and see it taught in the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19. Alms. What are alms? Alms are charitable relief of the poor. Alms are helping those that need help. Alms are giving as a religious duty toward those that need it. It's charitable giving for those in trouble. It's visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, as James 1.27 taught us. Alms are what that lame man was begging for in Acts chapter 3. He was looking for alms, and what did Peter say to him? Silver and gold have I none. Because that's what the man was expecting, was a little bit of silver and gold to get a little bit of bread because the man was lame. He wasn't a man with with health and strength that could have gone out and provided for himself because God is not communistic. Communism doesn't work in heaven, and it certainly doesn't work on earth. It is the absolute destructive force that ruins nations. But that man laying there on the sidewalk was expecting a little bit of gold and silver to support him because he couldn't work to help himself. 
And so alms were to take care of him. Peter said, I, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I'll give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And the man didn't just stand up. He stood up and ran around and leaped for joy and was bouncing around that city for several hours because he was beheld in court and everybody was astonished at what had happened to him because they had seen him there for so many days. That's what alms are. Alms are what Paul brought to his nation in Acts chapter 24 when he was bringing offerings from Greece to the city of Jerusalem. It's called alms, bringing alms to his nation, the poor saints that were there. Dorcas was a widow, and what did she do? She was full of alms deeds. She did something that was very good in giving alms to other widows. What did she do? She made them coats. And we can read about that in Acts chapter 9. But here we are back in Leviticus. Now you know what alms are. Dorcas, a widow, could give alms because she could make coats for the widows that didn't have a coat. The, the beggar needed alms because he couldn't work to provide for himself. God makes those choices, and when we come across them, we should remember that God makes those choices and take care of that man that God puts in our path. God has not made us responsible for every lame man in the world. God's made you responsible for the lame men that he brings across your path. Big difference. The Lord is merciful. <coughs> Leviticus 19. And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He invokes his name and his position as their God. His everlasting name of I am that I am, Jehovah, of the Bible. Not Yahweh and not Allah. Jehovah is his name in English. I am that I am. That God told the Israelites that when they were harvesting their fields, they were to do it in circles rather than squares. Now, when you drive by a farmer's field... They learned geometry well in the sixth grade, didn't they? Their lines are very straight. They get all the way to the corner before they turn around and come back. It's beautiful. And if you're in an airplane when you look down, it's incredibly beautiful to look down and see all those perfect squares. But God said that godly farming isn't done in squares. It's done in circles. Now you say, that is crazy because land has to be laid out in squares. Oh, he didn't say you don't lay your land out in squares. He just said that when you're harvesting, you harvest in a circle. So that the four corners of that field are left unharvested, so that the poor could follow along behind you and have food. See, that was the welfare system. They came along and worked to provide for themselves, but they were assisted by the man that owned the property leaving the corners. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Land is laid out in squares, but God said, harvest in circles so that the four corners of every acre or every field is left for the poor. And he said, don't go back and clean up those corners. That's what he said in verse 9 when he said, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. And in verse 10 he said, when you're gathering the grapes from your vineyard, 
Thou shalt not gather every grape. Just go through it and get most of them. And don't worry about it. Because I want the left rest. I want the left rest. I want the, 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 the rest of those grapes left for the poor that come behind you and can pick them from the vineyard and take for themselves. So that a poor person could have grain and a poor person could have grapes. And if we went to other passages like this, because this is not the only place this is mentioned in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's olives as well. He said, don't shake the olive tree till they all come down. Just shake it till you get enough. 90% is a good enough yield. Leave the rest for the poor. God is always taking care of the poor under both testaments. Look at Leviticus chapter 23. The Lord knows the temptation of the human heart. If you've got grain growing in a field, there's a desire for you to maximize your yield. You know, farmers are always measuring their yield. How many bushels am I getting per acre? The Lord knows that. Here's the same rule given again in the same book, but look at how he words it. Verse 22, And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field when thou reapest. Don't do a neat job. I don't want your fields neat as a pen. I don't want you clean ridding the corners of what's there. Neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them unto the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. He invokes his own name to put a burden of you, put a burden upon you to follow this commandment. Look at Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15, beginning at verse 7. Here's what the Lord taught through Moses to the nation of Israel in 2000 B.C. Verse 7. If there be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. Let me stop there for a moment and point out something that ought to be obvious to you from having read Psalm 41 this morning and from looking at this verse. There's two steps to charity. It begins in the heart, then it goes to the hand. Don't harden your heart. To harden your heart is to say, well, they can take care of themselves. To harden your heart is, well, I didn't know there was anything wrong with them. To harden your heart is, well, I'll wait until they're really in trouble. That's a hard heart. The, hard, the, the soft heart leads to an open hand. The hard heart leads to a closed hand. And look what God has to say here. He said, Thou shalt not harden thine heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart. You think I'm harsh? Read the word of God. Get used to it. Here's the Lord speaking to you. Beware that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him not, and he crying the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him. Here's what Israel did. This is the laws of God. 
They're better than the laws of the United States. Amen. The laws of the United States are incredibly inferior, and the laws of all other nations are incredibly inferior to those of the United States. God's law was so good that when Israel followed it, all the nations of the earth said of them, what wonderful laws these people have and how close God is to them. Now, this and this is pretty wonderful. Round harvesting in square fields is pretty wonderful. But here's another wonderful thing of God's law. Every seventh year, if you were in debt, all your debts got wiped out. The year of release. Every seventh year. You know, you ran your credit card debt up too high. You had a mortgage on your, on your place. In the seventh year, all debts were wiped out. That was an equalizing factor in Israel. And what the Lord is saying in this passage is, if you have a poor brother and he comes to you in the sixth year and needs to borrow something, what would, what would your tendency be? Now, I wouldn't have this. I, I wouldn't think this way at all. To have a brother come in the sixth year and say, can I borrow ten grand because I need it. I need it to buy a field and I'll pay you back in the next couple of years as I get some produce off that field. And you think to yourself, wait a minute, this is the sixth year. You look at the calendar, it's the sixth year. This man's going to borrow from me this year. Next year it gets wiped out. I lose. What does the Lord say about that kind of reasoning? What's the word? It starts with W. Wicked. wicked. That's a wicked heart that thinks that way. You say, well, if I didn't take care of myself, who else is going to look out for me? Thank you. The Lord will look out for you. He'll take care of you. I love these laws. I know I haven't got to that series, Brother Jeff, that I promised years ago. The law of God. And looking at how the Lord looks at things. These are precious. He just wipes it out every seventh year. And don't you do any evil calculating. Eric knows how banks work. Banks would put into their computer formulas, how far are we from the year of release, and charge accordingly. Absolutely they would. They would calculate, the year of release is coming up. These people are going to get out of their debts. We need to double the interest rate. The world wouldn't, but BB&T would. I speak as a fool. For those of you listening to this tape, forgive me speaking to members that are here and work for different types of lending organizations One's a commercial bank that has a few restraints, and one's a finance company that has none. And they would both calculate the year of release. Both have their place in society. Both work. If people weren't, if people followed any practical, any practical godliness themselves in borrowing and repaying on time. This is the word of the Lord. Why did I take you to these passages? Because we're not even studying the law of God this morning, but it's to see how God expects you to think about the poor. He does not want you doing calculating. These people are trying to get away with the loan by not repaying it. Just give. Do you know that it says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 35, Lend and hope and don't hope for it back again. And ye shall be the sons of your Father which is in heaven. Because that's not the big concern. This is the word of the Lord. I love the word of the Lord. It's precious. It's wonderful. Let's come back to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, those, those three passages that we just looked at were for us to realize that Jesus was not teaching something new. The law of Moses had that in it. You know, there are people that think the law of Moses was oh so hard and the law of Jesus Christ was oh so easy. No, it's both the same. We've seen that throughout so far. 
We worship God differently under the New Testament than we did the Old. But the principles of morality of loving thy neighbor haven't changed a bit. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You'd like to be forgiven your debts once in a while. So how do you do that if you're going to love your neighbor as yourself? Once in a while you're going to forgive him his. You say, well, I'd never get ahead that way. Oh, do I have any verses in my outline for that one? That is how you get ahead. You don't get ahead when you don't think that way. Matthew 6, 1, it says, take heed. You know what? The Lord Jesus Christ tells us something in those two words. Take heed. Listen to me. Be attentive. You know why? Because there's within our heart selfishness and pride and malice toward the poor when we, and we don't really want to help them in our fleshly nature. And so the Lord is saying, take heed that you don't want to help them. Take heed that you want to be seen for your charity, that because you don't really want to give, when you do give it, you're going to give it in a way that you get a benefit from other men because they see you giving it and they think that you're some great Christian. Take heed that you do not your alms before men. Now, sometimes your giving will be known by others. And it is not wrong when your giving is known by others. That is not the sin of Matthew 6, 1, 2, 3, and 4. And if you read very carefully, you already know it because you're already ahead of me. It says, take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Does that mean that you can never publicly give anything to anyone where someone might found, find out who gave it? No. doesn't say that at all because it goes on to explain what Jesus means, to be seen of them. It's when you give something publicly because you want to be known as the giver of that thing. Just to give in public isn't wrong at all. When I go to Acts chapter 4, what was the man's name? I forgot it. At the end of Acts chapter 4, that having a piece of property, sold it, and the money was brought and laid at the apostles' feet. Barnabas. There's a man's name. Jesus Christ is not condemning you doing something in public that other men see, he's condemning you doing it in public in order to be seen. Huge difference. It's your motive. And your motive is important because Jesus says, take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. If you do it that way, he is not going to reward you. Now this morning when we looked at Psalm 41, did we see some rewards? Were there several listed? Amen. Was one was verse 1A the condition and verse 1B two entirely and three entirely all rewards? Yep, yep. But you will not get those rewards if you do not give the way the Savior taught. The Savior wants you giving to the poor for one reason only, maybe two. The glory of God and the help of the poor. It's never to be seen of men and thought of as a great Christian. It's to honor God and to show your faith in Him by giving your money away. That shows your trust in Him when you give away what you've got. That's faith. The Lord loves to see it. And He loves the charity toward your neighbor. And He loves the concern for Him. There are lots of rewards. First, turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. There are lots of rewards for giving to the poor. You know, there are blessed men... And there are men that are not so blessed. Sometimes, now there's lots of factors in every man's life. Lots of factors. Thousands of factors. But here's one big factor. 
if that man does not have a charitable attitude toward the poor and give and help when he has opportunity, the Lord's not going to bless him. It's one great factor. And it's as true as the law of gravity. That God in heaven rewards those who take care of the poor. And I want to quickly race through five rewards that the Bible tells us about. First is the assurance of your salvation. First John chapter 3. If you started at verse 14, it says, We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. And it goes on down through there and explains what loving the brethren is. It tells you in verse 17 that you take of your assets and give it to those that don't have as much. And it comes down to verse 19 and it says, And hereby we do know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. Are you, are you doubting your salvation? Do you want to improve your faith and confidence that you're saved? Then go and give to your brothers and love the poor and love your neighbor and love your brother because that kind of love is not something you have by nature and the Lord will give you a blessing of assurance. i got other verses, but i got to keep going. The first great reward for giving to the poor is the assurance of your salvation taught right here in 1 John 3. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God will bless you with greater grace in your life. 2 Corinthians 9. Now, it wasn't long ago that we were at 2 Corinthians 9, and of course you all remember it. I could probably just ask you to quote it to me, and we could move on, but just to make sure, we'll go to 2 Corinthians 9 and look at it. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. We studied this epistle just a few months ago. But a few months is amazing in its power to erase the human mind. Isn't it, brethren? Would you like to stand and give an explanation for 2 Corinthians 9? Would I? It's amazing what time will do to our pitiful mind. That's how we get together as often as we can. And why we try to read the Bible daily because it slips away so quickly. 2 Corinthians 9.8 And God is able to make all grace abound towards you. You know what chapter 9 is about, don't you? It's given to the poor saints in Jerusalem. God is able to make all grace abound towards you. I like those words. Grace, I want God's grace. All grace sounds good to me. And all grace abounding sounds very good to me. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Verse 11. Being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. The Corinthian church was going to explode in the grace of God and fruitfulness because of their giving to the poor saints in Jerusalem because God was going to make all grace abound toward them. Don't have time to linger. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 11 and look at reward number 3. This is how you get ahead financially is to give your money away to the poor. Proverbs chapter 11. Now, you know when I write the Proverbs, I sometimes make fun of Harvard's Graduate School of Business and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the Stanford Graduate School of Business because of the top three business schools in America. I left out the University of Michigan. They're too pagan for me to even mention. But I make fun of those three because they don't understand verses like this. They've never taught this in their lives. There's not a professor among them that's even read it, let alone understood it. Proverbs chapter 11, or he wouldn't be teaching there. He wouldn't have a job. Proverbs 11.24 There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth. 
Wait a minute. Did I read it right? There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. How can you have something, scatter it, and have it increase? If I have this, and I take some of it and throw it away, how does this get bigger? The Lord operates above the laws of mathematics by blessing supernaturally in the lives of those who scatter what they have. This is the word of the Lord. It's as true as gravity. It's as true as Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Love this verse. We don't need it, but it's a nice blessing. It's what God promises those that will consider the poor. And consider the poor means more than just thinking about them. It means giving them something. It means scattering. If you haven't been scattering much recently, that's what I'm preaching it for. I didn't ask for 6, 1 through 4. God gave it to me. I'm working my way through the Sermon on the Mount. This is an important part of Scripture. If you think it's a minor part of the New Testament, you are gravely mistaken. It is listed over and over and over throughout the New Testament about giving to the poor. The number of verses is incredible. There's more verses about this subject than there is baptism in the New Testament. Verse 24, there is that scattereth and yet increaseth. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord says if you'll scatter your money to the poor, he'll increase it for you. You've got this much, you give some of it to the poor, and you get more. Now see, they've never taught that at Harvard. They think they're very intelligent at Harvard. But see, they can think no higher than the ceiling in this room. Mathematics, which is such a weak way of measuring life when there's a God in heaven that's lived from eternity. They haven't thought of that one either. They always have to put a 10 billion years on everything, even though they can't calculate something 10,000 years ago. They don't have a single thing that they can identify with proof over 5,000 years old. Not a single thing. But they want to talk about 10 billions of years. Our God is eternal. 10 billions is a drop in a bucket to him. They can't even fathom that concept. Nor can they fathom how he can take this throw away part of it, and end up bigger. That's the God in heaven blessing those who obey Him. There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth. And here's the other kind of a man. And there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Here's another man with the same amount of money. And he says, I just can't afford to give. I mean, I I come first. If I give it away, I won't have anything left for myself. And so he's got this much, and he doesn't give any away, and it's this much. That is Proverbs 11.24, and it's one verse, and I could repeat this over and over and over, because this is the law of God. Does the Lord say in one place, give, and it shall be given unto you, good measure, a full measure, pressed down, shaken together, and flowing over? That's how the Lord gives. These are wonderful principles. Look at what verse 25 says. The liberal soul shall be made fat. Now, this is taking it a step further. When you're making your decision, how much of this do I give to the poor? You know, some pull out a a knife, and they're going to peel the apple. Okay? They're going to peel the apple or the onion and just give them some skin. Are you with me? The liberal soul shall be made fat, but someone else will carve right into their apple. You know, give them a quarter of it. Give them an eighth of it. Give them a chunk of it. 
And it's the chunk that gets ahead. I'm sorry about my language, but, you know, I wasn't cut out for this anyway in the world's opinion, so you're just going to have to put up with Peter in the pulpit. I can match a fisherman on most days. I hope you understand that I'm a chunk of it, your apple. You know what I mean. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Amen. Reward number three was financial blessing, and I've left ten verses for you to look up on the outline if you're interested. Most people are usually interested in financial reward. But there's a fourth blessing. God will reward those who give in all sorts of other blessings. Do you know He can give you happiness? Look at Proverbs 14 and verse 10, since you're close. i got a bunch of verses to give you. That isn't the correct verse. I'll try to find it. It's too good to leave. I may not be able to. God will reward you in other ways besides financial blessings. And there's one verse, and I can't find it right now. I'm not going to worry about it. I usually worry about things like that, but I'm not going to. Don't you worry, help me. Uh, if you come up to me afterwards and tell me where it is, I don't need that kind of encouragement. There's other ways that God can bless a man who gives. Cornelius was a man who gave alms to the people, and God accepted them. And what did he get from the Lord for that almsgiving? Did he get a messenger? Was it, was, did he consider it more than making more money from the Roman government? What would Cornelius have chosen? If you know anything about the man from Acts chapter 10, would he have been excited about a 10% raise from the Roman government? Or would he, was he excited about Peter coming? Peter. The Lord sent Peter because his alms had come up into heaven. What a wonderful blessing from the Lord. The Apostle Paul told the Philippian church because they had given to him out of their poverty, he said God is able to abound towards you from the riches of his treasury himself in Philippians chapter 4. God is able to provide your needs in all sorts of ways when you take care of the poor. And the last reward, brethren, is in the day of judgment, God will remember it. In the day of judgment, God will remember those who took care of the poor because he's going to say you did it to me if you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren. Those are fantastic rewards. But when we come back to Matthew chapter 6, we see that if we don't do it in the right way, we lose the reward. Matthew chapter 6 said, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. I just went through five categories of rewards. Five categories of rewards. And Jesus is saying, Take heed, because what kind of people is he speaking to? The rich or the poor? He's speaking to the poor, about the rich. He's condemning the rich and their great giving and the, and the hypocrites among the Pharisees and the scribes. He's preaching to the common people because the Bible tells us it was the common people that heard him gladly. So he's telling them, take heed because your Father which is in heaven, which is so bountiful in giving rewards, will withhold them if you don't give the right way. Don't follow the example of your religious leaders who want to announce their giving in the street corner so that everybody watches them. He's preaching to the common people. He's preaching to a multitude that is there that are his disciples. Hardly anyone that was rich ever followed the Lord Jesus Christ, and hardly anyone that was rich will ever follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the great exceptions. It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
God has given them their heaven and this earth, and that's all they'll get. Don't complain about being poor. Be thankful that God has chosen you and made you rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him. Never complain about being poor. You're going to be the richest that can possibly be imagined for all of eternity. If we give it to be seen of men, look what it says in verse 2. The last sentence of verse 2. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. That is terrible news. Here's a man that gives, and he gets no reward from heaven. Because when he gives, he lets other people see him give in order to be seen. There's not a thing wrong with people seeing you give. If they have evil thoughts about it, that is their fault. You're not responsible for their evil thoughts in the matter. But if you ever do it with the thought in your head, I want to be seen, you just ruined that gift. If you let it slip out of your mouth that you happen to give such and such to somebody, and you let it slip out of your mouth because you wanted them to know what you had done without being too bold about it, you lose your reward. Now, I just think that that's crazy. Because here's a man who gives a chunk of his apple, he loses part of his apple, and he loses his reward from heaven. You lose on both ends. See, if you give the right way, you get the chunk back and some, because it increaseth. The Lord be praised. He's marvelous in his ways. And he condemns hypocrisy, and he condemns wickedness, and he condemns pride and selfishness and greediness and covetousness. But he rewards those that are liberal and generous. They have their reward. What reward did they get? This is somebody who gives so that someone will think that they're a great Christian. They have their reward. Someone thinks that they're a great Christian. Big deal. What good's that going to do you when you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and you are terrified like you've never been terrified in your entire life? You're going to turn to somebody and say, don't you think I'm a good Christian? You aren't going to turn to anyone in that day. You're going to want the Lord Jesus Christ thinking you're a good Christian, believing you're a good Christian, and declaring that you're a good Christian by saying, you fed me when I was hungry. You gave me drink when I was thirsty. You clothed me when I was naked. You visited me when I was in prison. That's what you want the Lord Jesus Christ saying, because he saw you doing it in secret, which we're getting to in the fourth verse. They have their reward, and it's no reward at all. Who cares what other men think of you? What counts is what does God think of you? And so I ask you this morning, have you done any secret giving recently? And by secret I mean not doing it to be pretentious. Have you done something for someone else in the way of charity, almsgiving, to serve them and to help them in their time of need? The Lord sees it and the Lord rewards. Let's come to verse 3. But when thou doest thine alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. When thou doest thine alms. He said, take heed that you don't do your alms the way the Jewish leaders are doing them. Don't do it that way. They're wrong in their practice. In chapter 5, it was they were wrong in their preaching. In chapter 6, it's they're wrong in their practice. Do it this way. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. Now, if we're to always take the word of God literally by primary definitions, this is a tough passage. Because I've tried to write a check with my right hand and keep my left hand ignorant of what my right hand was doing, but there's a connection between the two of them that keeps my whole body informed. I don't believe in primary definitions and making myself a slave to literal intentions. Jesus Christ is using a hyperbole here. 
Have you ever heard hyperboles in your life? I know, it's been a long time since you were in school. Not you. A hyperbole is an exaggeration that everyone understands and it doesn't cause anyone confusion. When I say I'm as hungry as a bear, not quite. You know what? Nobody wonders about that or he's as fast as a horse. No, he's not. He's not in the Kentucky Derby this past weekend. He's not as fast as a horse. You know, we use exaggerations that are well understood, and Jesus is using one here. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. You say, that bothers me that that's an exaggeration. Well, then try to figure it out. When you get it figured out, come and tell me about it. Because it is hyperbole. Jesus has already used some strong metaphorical language in chapter 5 when he said, if you're offended with something in your life sexually, pluck out your right eye. Cut off your right hand. Now, there have been some men that thought about taking him literally. I'm serious, brethren. One of the greatest church fathers there is in the history of the Catholic Church, St. Origen, they call him. He read Matthew 19 where it said, Some men have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, and he did it to himself. I'll leave it there. You can read about him. And you want to read a translation from a man that did that to himself from Matthew 9, not Matthew 19? You got problems. The Lord uses metaphorical language, and you don't want to be a literalist in the Bible. You want to look for the sense, and I'm giving you the sense right now, when he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. He is using a hyperbole to say, don't give your alms in public to be seen of men. He doesn't even mean, don't give your alms in public. Otherwise, we wouldn't know anything about Barnabas, would we? Don't do it in public to be seen of men. That is what verse 3 means. When thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. He uses a severe exaggeration to make a point to us that we ought not to do it to be seen of men. We ought not to do it in public. That's verse 3. And we've dealt with that before. We dealt with it recently. You know how long ago it's been since I preached a sermon. What about tsunami relief? Do you know when that was? Do you remember when the tsunami was? It was December 26th. I preached the beginning of January, and now it's the beginning of May. It was five months ago. Four months ago. A long time. Time is flying. We've already been over that subject about public giving is not wrong as long as it's not done to be seen of men. We come to verse 4. Don't do it the way the hypocrites do it. Don't do it by wanting to be seen of men to get their praise. Verse 4, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. This is a wonderful verse. God sees in secret. The Bible tells me the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil. That causes us to fear. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good. That causes us to rejoice. So I can understand rejoicing with trembling. Every woman, when you're serving your husband the way that you ought to and helping around the house and doing things that are not seen by men, nor thanked by your husband, I want to remind you, the eyes of the Lord are in every place beholding the good. Not a thing that you've done, not a drop of sweat that you have spent is lost by the God of heaven. And you should always remember that. Who in the world needs the praise of men 
If your heart truly loves the Lord, it is enough that he sees, that he rewards, and that he has told you that you ought to be doing those things for your husband, for your children, for your family, and for the church. And men, if you're, when your wife does do something like that, you shouldn't take advantage of what I just said and say, well, okay, that lets me off the hook because the Lord will reward her. No, you should be taking care of her and encouraging her as well because the Bible says that also. Verse 4 is that there's a God in heaven that sees in secret. If you slip someone some money to show them some kindness, God sees it. And the God that sees in secret himself will reward you openly. God himself will come to your aid and reward you openly. There will be a visible demonstration that the hand of God is upon you and blesses what you do. Do you remember Psalm 41 that we read earlier? He'll make all your bed in your sickness. He'll be your nurse. That is not a bad arrangement. I'll take a sickness where the Lord is my nurse, and Lord, I'm not asking for one. But I'll take one where the Lord's my nurse. That thine alms may be in secret. I know there's a temptation because I have preached four or five months ago, what about tsunami relief? Because I preached a few months before that, 2 Corinthians 9, a week before that, 2 Corinthians 8, you think that you have a handle on almsgiving. Well, before the God of heaven, how much giving of alms have you done? <clears throat> I don't care how well you understand it. I don't care if you can quote it to me. I ask you, how much giving of alms have you done? How much have you considered the poor? And that's what you ought to be considering right now as to how well you've practiced this passage. It has, no, it has nothing to do with how much you have. It has everything to do with what you've done with what you have. Even the poor can give. The poor are usually the most selfish of people. That's why we had a proverb in the last few days about a sweeping rain. You know, that destroys the food of a field about the poor being oppressive to other poor people. Poor people do not have a magnanimous spirit. Poor people do not have a charitable spirit. That's often one of the reasons why they're poor. You know, it's a false illusion of, of American philosophy that there is some virtue, and it's, it comes from Catholicism, that there's virtue in poverty. There's no virtue in poverty. If we read the book of Proverbs, the reason a man is poor when you measure the whole book is because he's lived a foolish life. Otherwise, all the laws of Proverbs fall to the ground and become nothing. The Lord will reward thee openly when you give. It has nothing to do with how much you have. Do you remember of all those that were casting their money into the treasury of the church in Jerusalem, which one did Jesus Christ see? The God that sees all things, did he see the, the men throwing in their large bags of coins? Or did he see the two mites of the widow? Amen. See, it doesn't matter how much you have. Even the poor can be charitable in time, in interest, in care, in affection, in little bits of money, in little acts of kindness. Even the poor. So there we have it. Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4. How do we apply it? The text has little meaning if we don't do it. You know, we need to start giving alms even today if we haven't been giving like we should have been giving. And think of some of the passages we've covered and the liberality that is described there. God rewards it. 
We've seen a number of blessings that God gives to those who give to the poor, and so you ought to keep that in mind. If you don't have an, ob- an object for almsgiving right now, if you don't know where to give your money, just hold it then. Or put it in the church's poor saints fund, because God will send you someone if you have a heart that wants to give. God will send you someone. You can wait for the poor. God will give you an opportunity. Be ready in your purse, and be ready in your heart and mind when the person comes along that God brings your way. There's two aspects of giving that God expects in order for him to receive it. Generosity and cheerfulness. He doesn't want a grudging giver. He wants a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And he says that you'll be rewarded according to the degree you give. The liberal giver will reap liberally. And the stingy giver will reap stingily. The Lord will be stingy with him. So you want to give generously and cheerfully. I mean, if you give grudgingly, you lose again. If you give grudgingly, you lose the money, and you lose the Lord's reward, and you're unhappy. I guess you're losing all the way around. That's just a horrible way to give. Give cheerfully and be excited about it. Scatter. That's why that word used is scattered. It doesn't even say invest. You know, invest is something done with a calculated eye to a return. To scatter is to throw it away. You're giving it away. You're giving it to the Lord. And you do not see when it's going to come back or how it's going to come back. But that's true Christian charity. Remember, a few months ago I preached about tsunami relief. How much should we have been plagued with the pictures coming across our television and the newspaper of the poor people in those Islam, Hindu, and other Buddhist countries over there. Remember, I spent a whole sermon on it. In that sermon, we saw from the Bible that first of all, our charity is due toward poor family members. You're to requite uncles, aunts, parents, grandparents, widowed mothers, widowed grandmothers. That's our first duty, is our family that is in trouble financially. Second, it's the poor in our church. Third, it's the poor in other churches. Fourth, it's poor victims that God puts in your path, like the wounded Jew he put in the path of the Good Samaritan. And I hope my young men will remember the order. It's in the Bible. It's very clear, very plain. And so we don't get misled by these hucksters on television that come along wanting to show you flies crawling on the eyeball of some baby from the sedan and make you feel guilty for the entire world because that is not taught in the Bible. The Good Samaritan was not going from town to town with a little notepad writing down all the orphans in each town. He was on his business and the Lord put someone in his way. Otherwise, you wouldn't get any business done and you wouldn't have any money to give to anyone. It's ridiculous what they do. God will providentially arrange to put the poor in your path that he wants you to take care of. He is able to do that. I hope you believe that. A righteous man doesn't even worry about the reward so much. He sincerely cares for the poor and the afflicted. He wants to honor God by giving away some of what God has given him. I hope you remember that the second commandment of all is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And you know what the Bible says about your love of God? It says in 1 John 5, 1, He that loveth God, love those that are begotten of God. It is impossible to say that you love God and you don't love those that are God's children. The two go together. 
hand in hand. You can't separate them. So the two commandments are tied together when it comes to charitable giving. If you love God, you're going to give to poor brethren. Because it goes hand in hand. You can't love God and not give to poor brethren. That is how powerful it is in the Bible and how closely they're connected. And may the Lord bless us to love God by loving our brother. I've been over all these rules before, the Proverbs, a few months ago. Charity doesn't subsidize sin if a man's lazy. He doesn't deserve to eat. He deserves to starve to death. The Bible is very plain about that. It's plain about that in the Old Testament. It's plain about it in the New Testament. Paul said, I command you, if a man will not work, neither should he eat. You know what the fastest way to get a man to work is? Let him get hungry. The closer your belly button moves towards your backbone, the more interested you are in employment. And so you help a person by letting him get hungry. If you keep feeding a lazy man, the Bible just ridicules you for such a foolish way of giving honor to a fool in the book of Proverbs. Because then you're encouraging him to stay lazy. Of course, what I'm talking about today is not subsidizing sin or foolishness, and it only provides necessary wants. Luxuries are not the right of anyone. They're a privilege and a blessing from God. They're not a requirement of Christian charity. It's needs, food, clothing, shelter, emergency medical care. We've been over those things before. And it addresses acts of God, not acts of foolishness. True Christian charity is looking for an act of God. Is an orphan an act of God? It is, unless the child killed its parents. An orphan's an act of God. How about a widow? Is a widow an act of God? I'd say the same thing. A widow's an act of God. So you look for acts of God that you can help and assist with your giving. The Lord's taught us all this. Look, look at 1 Corinthians 13. I'm almost done. Very, almost. Just look at 1 Corinthians 13 and remind ourselves of that passage that speaks about charity extensively. The love chapter of the Bible. You know, the Lord wants the right heart attitude. Remember back there in Deuteronomy? It said, don't harden your heart up against that poor brother. Well, here's an, an explanation of that in depth. And that is, if you don't have the spirit of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, to the person you're giving to, it amounts to nothing. Listen to the verse. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, if I gave every cent that I have to feed the poor and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. God will not reward me. He will not remember it if I do not give it with a spirit of the true affection, care, concern that is stated in verses 4 through 7. Those 15 phrases tell you the attitude that you ought to have when you give toward a person. Not, well, I better give because here's somebody that's poor and I want that reward. Oh, come on. Don't even give that way. This spirit right here, because Paul said, though I were to give all my goods to feed the poor, if I didn't do it with the right attitude, God will not accept it. Ephesians chapter 4. is to the, Just to the right a few pages. Ephesians chapter 4. Do you know what? If you have a godly heart, a great heart, a large heart, that God has made large by His grace. Most men have the, have the hearts of peanuts, and they're as hard as a peanut. 
If you have a great heart, you will hear a message like this. When you go to work tomorrow, you will have one more reason in mind why you want to go to work tomorrow and why you want to work hard. Do you know what that reason is? It's an effect. What? To have to give to those that need. It's a wonderful way to get up in the morning. I want to go work hard so that I can make more to have more to give to those in need. It's another way to help you get through the day. And it's here in the Bible. It's Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. It doesn't say, let the thief stop stealing and start working hard in order to have enough so that he won't have to steal. It doesn't teach that lesson. It teaches an an entirely different lesson. Let the thief stop his stealing and work a legitimate job so that he can have some money to give to others that are in need. Because the Lord wants us going to work if you've got a large heart. If you've got a heart that's been enlarged by the grace of God, you want to employ your mental abilities and your physical abilities to be able to acquire things, not to build your estate, but to build your almsgiving. That is a child of God that has been arrested by the grace of God and given a large heart. They want to give and they enjoy working because that way they get more to give. Who do you like to take out for dinner? You know what Jesus said? He said, when thou makest a dinner or a supper... Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense be made thee. Jesus Christ is not impressed by people who scratch each other's backs. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor. Call the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed. For they cannot recompense thee. For thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. That's the word of the Lord. Do you believe it's more blessed to give than to receive? Then show it by your attitude and your action. If you, des- if you despise the pride and hypocrisy of the Pharisees blowing their trumpets in verse 2 of Matthew 6, then show how much you despise it by questioning yourself about your recent almsgiving. If you have a hard time freeing up your cash to give to others, then think about the Lord Jesus Christ who was rich but became poor, that through his poverty he might make us rich. And brethren, he did make us rich. The Lord Jesus Christ became poor for us. He's not poor now because God rewarded him just like he'll reward all givers. But he became poor that we might be made rich. Surely we can give away a little to those that are in need. May the Lord bless his word for us, not only to do our alms in a way that pleases God, but to have some alms, to give. May Jesus Christ be praised.